You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. NFTs. Hey, this is Doc G, the Earn and Invest Podcast, non-fungible tokens. We're not going to talk about that today, but what they are is ownership of digital and intellectual property, and they really go to show how far we've come when it comes to intellectual property law. While not all of us are going to go out and buy NFTs, most likely, we all have some experience with intellectual property and probably don't even know it. Take a listen to this episode where we discuss intellectual property and why it should be important to you, whether you are a businessman or someone messing around on social media. This is Trevor Schmidt, and you're listening to the Earn and Invest podcast. Intellectual property is a category of property that includes intangible creations of the human mind. There are many types of IP, such as copyrights, patents, trademarks, trade secrets. The modern concept of intellectual property developed somewhere in Europe in the 17-1800s, but in the late 20th century, the concept became commonplace in the majority of the world's legal systems. The main purpose of intellectual property law is to encourage and protect the creation of a large and healthy mass of intellectual goods. To achieve this, the law gives people and businesses property rights to the information and intellectual products they create. But given the intangibility of ideas and the ability to use common elements to create similar outcomes, intellectual property, especially to the layperson, is becoming more and more confusing. Adding to this confusion is the digital revolution in which publications, articles, pictures, and even business ideas can be available at the touch of a button. Furthermore, social media has elevated us all to many content producers punching out our blogs, Insta memes, and Facebook posts at an ever-increasing pace. Surely, if you are a founder or a budding entrepreneur, it behooves you to protect your own and be wary of others' intellectual property. But what about you and me? the average everyday Joe and Jane clicking away in our ever-favorite social media app. Trevor Schmidt is a lawyer for Hutchison Law who has extensive experience in matters associated with intellectual property prosecution licensing, licensing enforcement, and strategic counseling. He effectively works with companies to monetize and protect their intellectual property through licensing, development, reseller agreements, and associated contracts. Having managed domestic and international trademark portfolios for Fortune 500 companies, he has considerable experience in all stages of the life of a trademark, including prosecution before the United States Patent and Trademark Office. 
Trevor routinely provides counsel on the intellectual property issues associated with major transactions and advises clients on maximizing their intellectual property assets through enforcement and licensing strategies. Trevor is also a registered patent attorney with a technical background in physics. He has drafted a number of mechanical, business method, and software-related patent applications. Trevor Schmidt, welcome to Earn and Invest. Let's start with some fun here. Tell us an example of someone who got in hot water with intellectual property, just to give the audience an idea of how interesting these issues can become. Yeah, well, it's a, it's a pretty common thing, actually. You know, I, one that immediately jumps to mind is, is, is I got a frantic email from one of our clients one day, and it was actually related to something his wife had done. So she had a blog that was up and, and had been running it for a number of years when all of a sudden they had received kind of a very sternly worded cease and desist letter. And it turned out that the, the blog had incorporated a picture from a runway of somebody and, and their dress thinking that they were just commenting on, on, on that use. But this was a happened to be an image that was owned by one of these content aggregators. So they, they own a bunch of photos and they license them out on behalf of the content creators. And so they had sent this demand letter to, to this woman demanding a payment of a, of a royalty of about $3,000. And she was just running a blog for fun to, to stay in contact with some of her friends and now was facing this huge potential liability. So I'm getting these frantic emails about how do we stop this? How do we protect this? What do we do? What did we do wrong? And, and you know, it was that kind of a, a question of having to respond and say, well, in reality, you, you didn't have rights to this image. So now that we know that, how do we mitigate the potential damages for you and, and make this so that it's not a bigger issue than it needs to be? It's a salient point because most of us don't understand what intellectual property is, and therefore we don't know how it intersects in both of our business and our social lives. Tell us a little bit more about how we define intellectual property. Yeah, so intellectual property is really kind of falls into a number of four categories, and that's the easiest way to think of it because it's really non-tangible property. But it's broken down into patents, trademarks, copyrights, and trade secrets are, are the major categories of intellectual property. So I'll break those down just as simply as I can. So patents are going to be really any sort of a, an invention. It's got to be new, useful, and non-obvious. And it really has to be a, a physical invention or a, a unique way of doing something. But it is protecting that inventive concept and the embodiment of that inventive concept. Then there's copyrights. Copyrights are creative works. So those will be things like photographs or written works or blogs or anything that you kind of write out. Or also software is considered to be a copyright because it's considered to be a creative expression when you write the code. Then there's trademarks. And trademarks are the words or logos or devices that we use to identify our goods and services and distinguish them from other people. So it's the way that customers identify you and distinguish you from other people. And then a trade secret is really anything that has value because it's not widely known outside of your company. So these may be things that for whatever reason you didn't want to seek patent protection for or weren't eligible for patent protection, but still have value to you or your company because it's not widely known by other people. So those tend to be the, the major categories of IP. And, you know, a lot of things fall into multiple buckets within that. And that's part of what I think contributes to some of the confusion. So I'm thinking of your average new business person. Maybe they're going to monetize a blog. Maybe they're selling some type of service or product. How do you know when it's time to start worrying about IP? I imagine that when you're at the beginning of your business, 
it's like one of the last things on your mind. Yeah, it's a really an interesting question because it has to do also with how the rights are created. So with each of those different categories that I mentioned, there are different ways that rights kind of arise. So for example, patent rights, you really don't have anything unless you filed an application to register that patent and patent issues. Copyrights, as soon as you've created your work and kind of sent it out into the world, you have a right in that, in that copyright immediately upon production. But then you can have additional rights to it by, by seeking a registration. So you have to consider whether you want to rely on your unregistered rights or if you need to seek that actual step of, of seeking registration. Same with trademarks. You have some rights based off of your use, but you can also get additional rights or broader rights by seeking to, to protect it. So when you talk as a, as a business owner, you talk to people thinking about starting a business, it's really that balance of what rights do I have now versus what do I need to invest to kind of protect those rights? And how I like to think about that with, with our clients is really all right, what's the most important asset to the company? What are you building your value around right now? Is there a way for somebody to take that from you that would kind of completely destroy the business? If so, you need to protect that as soon as possible. If it's something that is good for the company, but you know maybe something that could be changed, like a logo, like a, a trademark that you like, but is not necessarily crucial to the company, you may be able to rely on some of your unregistered rights for a while until you have greater resources to protect it. Or you can consider this, no, this is important to my company. I need to protect it now. So it's always that balance between what are my protections that are available to me and what are the costs of seeking some additional protection and finding that balance. Now, you use two words that always perk our ears up here, investment and resources. What we're talking about is spending money. Mm. So when you're trying to make that decision to go from kind of the baked-in protections you already have to maybe some higher-level protections... How much money are you looking at spending and do you need professional help or can you apply for some of this on your own? Yeah. So again, it will depend on the category. So like for a patent, you know, a patent application could easily cost you between eight to $10,000 to get on file. And that just gets you the papers that are filed with the, the patent office. And then there's going to be back and forth with the patent office to get that to a point of registration. So for patent protection, you're looking at a significant amount of investment. Copyrights tend to be less expensive. So the filing fee for copyright ranges from $35 to $75. And it may be something if you're, you're kind of comfortable with it, that you can look at the copyright forms and file it yourself. But there are, for both copyright and trademarks, there are forms that are available that can kind of walk you through it. But there are pitfalls that I think the unwary should be cautious about and would benefit from having counsel to kind of walk them through that. And once they understand what those pitfalls are, I think most of the time copyright and trademark is something that somebody could walk through, but is still benefited by, by having counsel help them with it. Now, we mentioned copyright and trademark, but you also talked about trade secrets being intellectual property. How do you protect those? Because that seems a little bit more ephemeral to me. Yeah, it and it really is. I mean, trade secrets are really protected by the kind of the policies within your company and then by how you provide access to other people. So if you have a company where you have more than just yourself in the business, you have to have employment manuals and employment policies that say, you know, if you work for me, everything that you learn from me is confidential. You have everybody sign off on that and that starts to protect your trade secret. Similarly, if you're going to provide access to it outside the company, you want to have non-disclosure agreements in place or license agreements in place that really say this is mine. The only reason you're having access to it is because I'm providing it to you and you're going to keep it confidential. And it's really those steps of agreements and policies that maintain the secret nature of the trade secret and also protect its economic value. 
how binding are those kind of agreements and policies? Because we certainly have heard out there in the world, in the press, about people arguing about who owns a specific trade secret, an idea, uh, a special formula. Like, how binding are these legal documents? They're certainly binding, but I think the biggest challenge is that you have to prove it. So you have to enforce it. So any contract that you have really provides you a tool to go out and enforce the rights that you have in that contract. So you can't just show up to the other person and say, I have this agreement, you have to stop. Most of the time, that's not going to be sufficient for them to stop. It gives you a tool to then go to court and say, we have these obligations, we have this, these, this agreement in place, and you need to make them stop. So I think that tends to be one of the challenges is, is that you still have to go through the enforcement action. But then you know, once you get into court and those types of things, these agreements are protectable. Then you get into the challenge of demonstrating really that you've followed these policies to make sure that the, the, the trade secrets have remained secret, who created it, who really owns it. And that's going to be a challenging fact pattern at any point in time. And it's going to require a lot of different evidence. I want to take a detour from the conversation for a moment. We're going to come back to intellectual property specifically and talk about not just businesses, but our social media lives. But before we do, I feel like this understanding intellectual property is so part and parcel of just building a new business in general. Talk about some of the mistakes you see in small business owners as they start building their businesses. Yeah, so there's a number of different mistakes that can be made. I think one would be, you know, not having solid agreements in place when you start. So I see a lot of situations where I have a neighbor, I have a college roommate, I have a friend, and we want to start a business together. We don't go through any sort of formal process of creating an entity or creating a corporate structure. We're just all good friends. So we're just going to rely on that to kind of carry us through. And, you know, that's all great until it isn't. And and most of the problems that we see kind of on our side relate to founder disputes, relate to disputes with people who are early on involved in the company, but then later become not involved in the company. So it behooves you to really think about that upfront when everything is going well. What is our corporate structure going to look like? How are we going to define our relationships? How are we going to define our relationships when things are not going well? And how do we want to to handle those situations? It's, It's best to think about that upfront. And that tends to be a pretty common mistake that, that, that's made. Others tend to be not, again, protecting their intellectual property, not understanding that there are some things that you can do that will actually foreclose your ability to seek protection in the future. So, for example, for patents, there are what are called statutory bars and patents, where if you have disclosed your invention or offered it for public sale prior to filing your patent, if you've done that far enough in advance, you can actually foreclose your ability to secure a patent. And so the last thing that you want to do is finally realize that you want to protect that, that this is valuable to protect. And you go to the patent office and you actually find out that you've lost that right. So having those conversations early can be, can be very helpful. And then I think also just surrounding yourself with good advisors, including, you know, a good attorney, a good accountant, you know, a good kind of business advisor that can help you guide your path. I think those are all critical things to do at the early outset of your business. Yeah, one thing that comes to mind is we often start businesses with people that we don't have a formal connection to, with our buddies, with our friends and our family members. And making that transition from informal to formal sounds like one of those big missteps at the yeah, beginning. I, I think it really is, too, because it's an awkward conversation to have. I mean, imagine it's a good friend of yours or, or a family member, you know, that you're just like, well... You know, things are good, but we need to have this contract. And people are hesitant to have that conversation because it suggests a lack of trust. But really, if you're, if you're going into business and you're going to do it seriously, you kind of have to get over that hurdle because 
it's not it's not bad form to say that I'm, I don't trust you. You're just saying that we need to formalize this so that we're both protected down the road if something happens. Let's talk more about that formality. How important is the way a new business is housed? I know people get very confused about the difference between corporations and LLCs. Is it important and why? Yeah, there's a couple of reasons it can be important. One is going to be the tax consideration because both LLCs and corporation are taxed in, in kind of different formats. So LLCs typically have passed through taxation. So you know the profits and losses of the business are passed through to the individual owners. Whereas a corporate formation tends to, you know, have the situation where the corporation itself is taxed. And then if there's any distributions to the shareholders, those are taxed separately as well. So that's one consideration. The other is going to be kind of the administration hurdles. So a corporation tends to be more costly to administer. It tends to have additional administrative requirements. So it depends on how sophisticated you are. There's also the consideration of if you're considering taking on investment. So if you are actually considering at some point in time taking on investment, especially from institutional investors, you're more likely to have an expectation that you're going to be a a corporation at that point in time because it's the formation that they're familiar with. It has the protections that they're familiar with, and they know how to kind of operate within that structure. And really, if they're going to write a million, $2 million check, they're not going to want to, to kind of play with your formation. They're going to make you move into theirs. So that's some of the consideration. Because even if you've originally formed as an LLC, you can convert into a corporation to take on that investment. But sometimes it's easier just at the outset to say, no, I know in six months to a year, I'm going to be looking for institutional funding. So I'm going to set it up right now so I don't have to make that change while I'm looking for money. Is there an argument to formalize earlier than later? I know a lot of people say, well, we don't really even have a business yet. We're just getting started. We haven't made our first sale. How do you know when the time is right? Yeah, I I would encourage people to have it as formed as early as possible that you know you're moving forward with and especially before you have any sort of product or contracts that are, you know, product that is being released into the market or contracts that are being entered into. Because one of the benefits of corporate formation is the liability protection from individual assets. So you don't want a situation where the company is out there potentially incurring liability that could blow back to you and your personal finances when really that was a risk that was being taken on by the entity. I also think it's it's beneficial to have it formed earlier so that you can take care of kind of transfer of IP into the business so that you can have everything in, in the essentially the pool that you need it to so that the business can grow from that point on. So that's easier to do at the outset. So let's move on from starting a new business to how you start protecting yourself. We've talked a little bit about patenting and copywriting. What is licensing? I know you do a lot of that. And and how does that play a role? Yeah, so licensing is really when you're giving somebody else the right to use something that you own. So if I have gone through the process and have a patent, I own that patent and I own all rights to it. But if somebody else wants to use it or somebody else wants to manufacture the patented invention, I can license that to them essentially saying here, I'm giving you a portion of the rights that I have. And that can be either exclusive, it can be for a period of time, it could be for a limited purpose. So you're essentially doling out your rights to other people to use them for either monetary gain or for to help you kind of accomplish your goals. So you can do that with patents, you can do that with software, you can do that with your trademarks, but it's really a contract that gives other people rights to use something that belongs to you. So in this case, you still retain the rights. Let's contrast that to something like freelancing, where maybe you do some work for someone, you create intellectual property, then often with freelancing, it actually belongs to that person. Yeah, that's an interesting question because there's, there's, some, there's some kind of tension there because in freelancing, 
let me, let me take a step back. For copyrights, it's important to understand that whoever has created that work owns the work unless there is either an agreement or something under the law that transfers it to another person. So the freelancing scenario represents an interesting kind of position in the law, because as a freelancer, I'm the person who's created the work. And so by creation, I automatically own it unless I have a contract in place with the person who hired me to do the work that says, no, you're transferring all rights and what you've created to me. And so for people who are either freelancers themselves or are hiring freelancers, it's important to know that just because I'm paying you to do development work for me, that does not mean that I automatically own it unless you are an employee of my company. But if you're just a freelancer, I need to have an agreement in place saying that those rights are coming back to me as, as the person who hired you. Let's take a quick break. We're talking with Trevor Schmidt, who specializes in intellectual property, patent, and copyright law. We'll be right back. I'm Doc G, and this is Earn and Invest. You know what? I love our meals from Factor. My son started getting them about a year ago when he needed a quick alternative to meals on the go. But where we've really enjoyed them is we've been remodeling our kitchen. That's right. We've had no access to our kitchen for the last few weeks. And some nights we just had no idea what to do for a meal. That is where Factor came in. We would just pop the meal in the microwave and two minutes later... We'd have a fantastic meal. You can do the exact same thing, and there's tons of variety. Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including Calorie Smart, Keto, Protein Plus, or Vegan and Veggie. Also, discover more than 60 add ons every week. These are chef prepared meals, and let me tell you, they are delicious. No fuss, no mess. You just put it in the microwave, and two minutes later, you have a meal. This is tailored to your schedule. You can customize your weekly meals with the flexibility to get as much or as little as you need. Head to factormeals.com slash earn50 and use your code earn50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code earn50 at factormeals.com slash earn50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Wish you were in early on some of the best-performing IPOs of 2019 and 2020? Our crowd investors were, and now you can join them in what's next. With our crowd, accredited investors have access to invest directly, easily, and most importantly, early. Our crowd investors have benefited from our crowd companies IPOing like Beyond Meat or being bought by companies like Intel, Nike, Microsoft, and Oracle. Our crowd's investment professionals leverage their extensive network to review some of the most promising private companies and startups in the world. Today, you can join our crowd's investment in Safara, an unprecedented innovator in the rapidly growing multi-billion dollar connected mobility market. Safara's mobile platform uses AI and behavioral science to reduce risk, save lives, and ensure accountability for companies and their employees. You can get in early on Safara and other unique opportunities at ourcrowd.com slash EAI. If you're interested in investing, you need to join our crowd. The our crowd account is free. Just go to OURCROWD.com slash EAI. Let me reintroduce you. Trevor Schmidt is a lawyer for Hutchinson Law who has extensive experience in matters associated with intellectual property prosecution, licensing, enforcement, and strategic counseling. Before the break, 
We were discussing the difference between licensing and freelancing. Trevor, so you're sitting there and you have your small business. Maybe you filed some copyrights or some patents. You have your trade secrets. You're out there doing what you do. And you see that someone is using your ideas. What's the first step? Yeah, so there's there's a couple things there. So I think it's interesting in this day of social media, there has really been a transition from the power of the courts to enforce kind of IP protection to the power of kind of private industry to do it. Because right now for companies, for individuals, really your best mechanism to stop somebody else from using your trademark, your copyright, your, your, your creative work is to rely on some of these IP objection mechanisms that are available through social media. So Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, all of these companies have mechanisms where you can file objections to uses on their sites. And they are pretty quick to take things down if you can clearly demonstrate that you own it. Same thing with Amazon and eBay and some of these other marketplace sellers. They have mechanisms in place where you can identify third-party uses. And it's going to be a faster, kind of quicker mechanism than it is to send a cease and desist letter, to appeal to a court to have it taken down. I mean, because we're talking a matter of of days with some of these, with social media platforms, whereas you're looking at years if you have to go to a court to try to enforce it. But I also didn't want to kind of put a pause there too, because you you said something that's interesting. Uh, you, you You mentioned protecting your ideas. And I don't think we really covered it at the outset. But one thing I hear a lot is, it's I have this idea and I want to protect it. But all of the available types of IP protection that are out there really don't protect an idea itself. And it's an important distinction because so patents will protect an expression of the idea within an invention. Copyright will protect the expression of an idea within like a written work. But the idea itself, there really is no form of IP protection that, that, that can keep somebody else from ha- having the same idea. So for example, if I come up with a great business plan, I have a fantastic idea of how we're going to revolutionize the legal field, for example, since that's my field. If I write out manuals and I write out policies and procedures and how to do that, somebody can't take those manuals and policies and procedures and use them as their own. But they can read those policies and procedures. They can read those manuals and say, I can do the same thing. I'm just going to write out my own instructions for that. And that would actually be permissible and allowed under IP. In a sense, you can't get rid of competitors. Right. <laughs> if you have a good idea, likely somewhere yeah. else, someone somewhere else has had a good idea. You know, we all know those folk stories about maybe what is it, the light bulb, where two different people had their information out to the patent office and one got there sooner than the other by the mail. In this case, maybe they had very similar technology, but it all started with an idea. And there's nothing to stop other people from having the same idea you have. Yep. And it's really going to be come down. And, you know, I see that a lot, especially in software, you know, in software, there are 10 ways to kind of get from point A to point B. And as long as each person has kind of gone about it on their own way, you may not be able to stop them from doing it. So tell me how often that it goes from the simple stuff, like talking to the social media platform. Next step would be something like a cease and desist letter. How often do these cases end up in court? And can you give us some examples of the types of things you end up prosecuting in court? Yeah. So I would say on the whole, in, in the types of matters that I deal with, so patent, I would say patent tends to be a little bit different because there actually can be potential significant recoveries in patent infringement cases. But for trademark and for certain types of copyright, majority of these tend to be resolved short of short of the courthouse. And the reason is because the recovery of damages can be potentially uncertain. So kind of at the outset, we talked about for copyrights that you have a copyright just by having created the work 
and, and published it, but you can have additional rights to it by seeking a registration. So if you haven't sought the registration, you really can't sue somebody in court for a violation of your copyright. You can rely on some of the kind of the social media protections to take it down. You can rely on cease and desist letters to have people voluntarily take it down, but you're not going to be able to sue in court for it. So that's one of the reasons why oftentimes you don't see copyright cases and make it all the way to, to litigation. On the trademark side of things, you don't see things make it to litigation because eight out of 10 cases, maybe, even if you're successful in the litigation, you're not getting any money back. You don't get, you don't get fines. You don't get royalties coming back. So you spent $150,000, $200,000 to prove that somebody misused your trademark. And at the end of the day, the only thing they have to do is stop using the trademark. And so there's a this kind of business case that just doesn't make sense for things to get all the way to courthouse litigation. So let's move the conversation from businesses and small businesses to something I think we're all involved with is social media. What type of intellectual property issues have you seen popping up on social media? The the example you gave at the beginning was certainly one. What are you seeing out there? Yeah, so the, the, you know, social media has a blessing and a curse as well because it distributes our work to a broader audience. But then also because it's distributing it to a broader audience, there's more people who may see your work and think that it's you know something that's wrong with theirs. I recently had a case where um, somebody I was working with had a podcast and had been using that podcast for maybe a little over a year when out of the blue, they had received a cease and desist letter based on the, the trademark that they were using to identify their podcast and their blog. And looking into it, you know, it really was, you know, a wealth planning firm in New England that had like a local office and was providing financial planning services in that area. But because this podcast, you know, was, you know, in the Southeast and had a nationwide platform through social media, it came across their plate and ended up having an objection being raised based off of it. So I think that that's one consideration. And the other is, there's a fine line now between what really is kind of what's a trademark use? What is, you know, when am I using somebody else's rights in a way that I, I can't? Or when am I providing commentary on it? So, you know, in social media, a lot of people will, you know, talk about Coca Cola, talk about Microsoft, talk about Xbox, all of these things. Am I doing it to provide commentary or critique of, of this business? Or am I doing it really to attract? these big brand names followers so that they come to, to my site, to, to my podcast, to my website. And is that trading off the goodwill in, in their trademark? I, I think we see a lot of intersection between what people are trying to do and, and what rights other people might try to protect. And it's confusing, right? Because most of us who are out there mm-hmm. on social media feel like these brands want us to promote their work and that that's actually a positive thing for them. If we retreat their pictures or Mm -hmm. we talk about the brand, it's almost confusing to think that we also could be impinging on their rights. Well, and it's interesting because it's, it's confusing because also different corporations take vastly different approaches to it. I mean, some will say, yes, this is great. Any promotion of my business, anything that's getting my name out there is, is you know, free publicity. I like it. Please keep talking about our brand. Others are like, no, if it hasn't come from our, you know, marketing firm to our PR department to the world, then we don't want to, we don't want anybody else to kind of talk about it. And so not only is there kind of the confusion in the law itself, but I think the way that companies enforce it is vastly different. And I see this a lot too in kind of fan-based works. You know, you see a lot of social media out there where people have taken their favorite product and maybe made a commercial or taken their favorite product and made a 
a t-shirt about it or, you know, something along that line that really shows that they love this product and that they are a big consumer of this brand. Some brands are going to shut that down immediately and say, no, you can't do that. And others will be like, celebrate it and promote it themselves. And so that creates, again, some of this confusion about what is allowed and what's permissible. Because I think from a, a legal standpoint, no, you're really not allowed to use somebody else's brand in a way that kind of suggests a sponsorship or affiliation with your company. But again, that's a right that the, the owner has the right to protect or has the right not to protect. So it creates some uncertainty. Are there some basic, simple attribution rules that we can use? I mean, so we're out there, we're on social media. We like to retweet pictures. We like to show brands we like. Is there a way we can somewhat protect ourselves, especially when we're doing this for fun, right? It's one mm -hmm. thing when you're doing it for a business. It's another when you're just sitting and scrolling at 3 a.m. in the morning and sharing something you like. Yeah. And unfortunately, you know, there, there's not kind of a hard and fast attribution rule because it's not really a situation where I can say... I, you know, for example, for a picture, I can't automatically use a picture as long as I identify the fact that somebody else took it because they still have the right to determine how that's distributed and how it's used. Same with the trademark. I can't, you know, take somebody else's trademark and just identify on my website that this belongs to somebody else and it's being used without permission. That's not kind of a, a silver bullet that, that protects you. I think once you get into things like content, you know, if you are referring to somebody else's work, you know, citation and those types of things are, are helpful to identify where it comes from. And then you can kind of avoid both kind of a, a claim of plagiarism, but also just kind of assertion that you're somehow misusing those rights as well. Yeah. The other thing that comes up is using people's words, right? Mm -hmm. So I think before this digital age, if you use someone else's words, most of the time, no one knew. We see this right in college papers where they run them through some type of scan that tells them if any of the phrases or the sentences are looking familiar. We've also seen that with the presidential speeches, right? Where you have someone giving a speech and it's sounding eerily like someone else's Technology's kind of changed the game with the written word, it sounds like. It, it certainly has, because, I mean, to your point, I think the ability to identify kind of misappropriation of somebody else's work has increased greatly. And kind of the scrutiny of it also has increased greatly. So there's two kind of considerations there. One is, you know, the idea of plagiarism and kind of this more social approbation on, on taking somebody else's work without providing credit for it. And that's not really a legal standard. From a, from a copyright perspective, if you've taken somebody else's work, you really have to show that you have taken you know, a substantial portion of that work and that your final work product is substantially similar to that, which is covered by that existing copyright. And so it's a kind of a different consideration. You know, I can take somebody else's quote and proffer it as my own, and I haven't infringed their copyright. It may be bad form, but it's not a legal violation. But if I take their whole manuscript and take their name off of it and put my name on it, then it becomes, in addition to being bad form, a legal violation. One of the ways we learn and grow is we deconstruct those people or things that we feel are excellent at what they do. It occurs to me that often, sometimes the things we produce, we don't even realize when we're borrowing from others intellectual property. Can, is it okay to say, look, I just didn't realize? I mean, is that usually good enough to take it down whatever you did and say, look, I didn't realize. I thought I was creating something original. Now that I look back, there are some parts of that that maybe mm -hmm. I heard somewhere else. Is it okay to just say, okay, I'm going to take it down and that's it? Is that the end of the game usually? 
Yeah, I think it tends to be in, in most situations. And, you know, there's certainly going to be circumstances where people are using it for other other purposes or, or using the fact that you used it for other purposes. But I think my experience has been both on kind of using somebody else's words and some of these other IP issues, taking it down, acknowledging kind of fault and, and taking it down and, and agreeing not to use it forward tends to resolve, you know, 70, 80% of these disputes. There are some people who that's not going to be sufficient and they're going to kind of demand the pound of flesh along with that. But majority of the time, if you take it down and stop using it, again, there's not a financial incentive for them to continue to pursue you. And you and I talked before this about this idea that now they're actually scams who are looking at your some of your social media or your blogs and accusing you of using their intellectual property and asking for money. Are we seeing more and more of these as intellectual property becomes more of an issue in our legal system? Yeah, I think there are certainly a lot of people who rely on the lack of familiarity about about IP generally and about what rights are available and what those rights entail other people too to make these false claims. And some of them, you know, are just outright scams where they'll send letters with no basis behind it. Some of it are, at least in the legal field, referred to as trolling efforts where you have bought up patent rights or you have bought up copyright interests in an effort to blanket the world with these cease and desist letters as a way to generate some sort of a revenue coming back. And I think that tends to be a very destructive and pernicious kind of use of IP and is not good for those who are trying to legitimately enforce the rights that they, they've created. It kind of creates this, this disincentive for anybody to try to enforce their rights, but it, it certainly is a problem. And so if you do ever receive a demand letter for, for patent infringement, for copyright infringement, it, it behooves you to talk to somebody about what it is, what is this really valid? Is this something I should be concerned about? And how do I respond to it? Because they can, they can demand that you pay them $5,000. You're under no obligation to pay them $5,000 until you you know, until a court orders you to do so. So oftentimes I'll consider that to be a starting offer in a negotiation if, if, the, if the rights are legitimate and we'll talk about really what, what that value should be. You know, yes, I misused your copyright image. There's no way that you've got somebody who's paying you $5,000 to use that image in the same way that I did. So what is it that it's really valuable? Well, you know, what's the value for me to pay to you? Yeah, I guess it's important to know that if you are in the unfortunate situation where com- someone comes at you with one of these emails or letters, to realize that in a sense, probably that monetary value is something that's either made up or possibly grossly inflated. Yeah, probably both. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> Let's look towards the future. I mean, the world of technology is changing. How is that going to complicate intellectual property law? Yeah, I mean, I think it already has. So we're we're dealing with statutes that were passed, you know, way before our time right now, certainly way before the the internet era and and what we're dealing with now. So I think IP laws need to catch up to modern times, you know. And and so I'm thinking, for example, we have what's called the Digital Millennium Copyright Act for copyrights, which is a mechanism, which really is what has caused these social media platforms to have IP objection mechanisms to take things down. It's a statute that was passed that says platforms like eBay, platforms like Facebook, et cetera, aren't going to be held directly liable for copyright infringement if they follow these steps from their users' generated content. So if a user uploads a picture that's infringing, Facebook's not going to be held liable for it as long as Facebook has a mechanism in place for people to contact them to take down the image and they don't use it again, knowing that it's an infringement. 
There's not an equivalent for that for, for trademark. So right now, if somebody misuses a trademark, there's not that same type of mechanism that's out there. I think there needs to be a statutory address to, to how trademarks are used in the internet era. I think we need to address you know, the patent troll issue that I've talked about. You know, There's been some statutory changes to try to address and prevent that. They need to continue to, to, to work on that and find, find mechanisms to really prevent kind of these predatory behaviors. It's an interesting question because we talk about these third parties often and the connection to freedom of speech, right? Should Facebook or Twitter, et cetera, put up speech that might be untrue or might be dangerous? But I guess the question can remain too for intellectual property. Should we be holding these third parties more accountable? That's a that's an interesting question because, you know, in some respects, these still are privately held industries or privately held businesses. And so they have become so massive that their reach is so much greater than anything that we probably anticipated at any other point in history. And so I think there does need to be some consideration about what liability companies have for transmission of you know, patently false information. I, I don't think we're in a situation anymore where we can allow social media companies to hide behind the fact that we're not here to enforce free speech. We're not here to, you know, kind of regulate other people's speech on our platforms. But if it's being used as a tool to perpetuate false ideas or to scam other people or those types of I think we do need to see greater liability or responsibility for these big companies. Trevor Schmidt specializes in intellectual property, patent, and copyright law. We'll be right back. I'm Doc G, and this is Earn and Invest. Have you been enjoying listening to Earn and Invest every Monday and Thursday? Well, there are now two new opportunities to get in on the conversation 24 hours a day, seven days a week. They are our Earn and Invest Facebook group. Go to earnandinvest.com slash Facebook. There we have conversations about the episodes, personal finance, the economy, you name it, we talk about it. And the other opportunity is to check out the Earn and Invest blog. Go to earnandinvest.com slash blog. There I write about personal finance and financial independence. Two new opportunities to become part of the Earn and Invest community. Check us out. We can't wait to see you there. We're back with Trevor Schmidt. He is a lawyer for Hutchinson Law who has extensive experience in matters associated with intellectual property prosecution, licensing, enforcement, and strategic counseling. Before the break, we discussed whether these third parties like eBay, Facebook, Twitter, etc. should have more a role in playing when it comes to intellectual property. Trevor, this has been a time like no other 2020-2021 has really caused a shift in our workforce. The pandemic has moved everyone to virtual. Do you think this virtual workplace is going to change the world of intellectual property? You know, I think it has some kind of challenges and benefits. One, I think it has created opportunities for small businesses to work with broader people. So I I think there's opportunities to collaborate with people that we wouldn't have had the opportunity to kind of pre-pandemic. So I think for freelancers, for small businesses, that creates opportunities to both you know, create new intellectual property and kind of distribute that to, to markets that you otherwise wouldn't have had access to. On the flip side of it, I think there are going to be some challenges for big companies and, and, and businesses to protect their IP when everybody's kind of on a distributed platform. Because I think some of the 
some of the policies or some of the protections that you might have for everybody coming into the office each day to kind of discuss sensitive or protected information, it becomes more challenging when now you're doing it over a Zoom call or now all of a sudden you're sending more emails than you were instead of walking down the hall to, to hand off documents. And so I think as we talk about things like trade secrets or patent protection, those types of things, I think there are new challenges in, in working with your team to make sure that you're still protecting the IP that you need to and making sure that people are kind of following policies that are appropriate for you know, the distributed work era that we live in right now. Another point it brings to a head is a lot of people are now working internationally. It's not mm-hmm. uncommon for you to be touching base with people outside the country and the legal systems are different. Is there a pretty defined way of dealing with intellectual property internationally as opposed to nationally? So really all trademark, I mean, not trademark, all IP protection tends to be provided on a country by country basis. So if I have protection in the United States, that doesn't mean I have protection in Germany or France or Russia. So if I am moving internationally and if I'm using my products or my mark or offering my software outside the United States, I need to consider what steps I need to do to protect it outside the country. So the one major exception to that tends to be the EU. There's a mechanism to secure rights that cover the entire uh, European Union, but otherwise you really are looking on a country by country basis. So let's pivot the conversation to talk about you personally. We've gone over some of what you do at Hutchinson Law. We've talked about patent law. You are also a podcast host. Tell us about Foundershares. Yeah, so Founder Shares is our opportunity to kind of interview some of our clients and some of these these founders of of their companies to talk about what their experience has been running a startup. You know, I'm, I'm just fascinated by these stories about what it takes on a day to day level, on a personal level, to to run a business, to, to take it from the idea to growing it to taking on investment, and then hopefully a successful exit. And uh, this is really just our chance to have those conversations with a number of different founders and and to learn about their experiences. Tell me what threads run through the founder community. This is a small subset of people who can actually take an idea, a plan, and turn it into a busy business. What do they share? Yeah, so a lot of the common themes that I hear is, you know, ideas are dime a dozen, but really what it takes is execution. So, you know, I've heard uh, two or three of our guests say something along those lines that, you know, they come up, have people come up to them all the time saying, I've got this great idea for a business. And they're like, great, go do it. Because that's really what the hard part of entrepreneurship is, is that you have to take that idea and you have to execute on it. So consistently across the folks that I've talked to, there tends to be a bit of a tolerance for risk that, that some of us may not have. There is this ability to surround yourself with advisors. The other consistent theme that I, I hear is there's this, this fine balance between having absolute confidence in your idea, yourself to execute in your business, but being willing to take direction and instruction and, and constructive criticism from other people. Because it's it's interesting. Some CEOs and some founders are going to be the most you know, confident, arrogant people that you're ever going to meet. But at the same time, if it's to a point where they're not taking feedback from the customers, they're not taking feedback from investors, that's going to blow up at some point in time and because you really have to be able to take that direction. But you also can't let people tell you no and have that no stop you in your tracks. They have to have that kind of internal fortitude to kind of keep going. Yeah, it's a funny idea because most successful entrepreneurs I know started with one idea and often at some point hit a critical pivot point. Yep. And I would imagine that those who can't pivot probably stick with the idea that isn't working and don't go very far. Whereas those who are really open to the pivot, 
find that maybe years down the road, they're doing something completely different than they thought they would, yet they're successful. That's absolutely right. I can think of, I don't know if I can think of one offhand right now of clients that, that started with the same idea that they exited with. There's going to be a kernel of it in there somewhere, but it's not going to be the, what you started with on day one. So you're talking to all of these founders, all these entrepreneurs. You ever get the itch yourself? Uh, you ever feel like starting your own business? Every day, you know. I, I think that's part of my fascination is I want to know what what's holding me back. And I think part of it is, you know, I have a, a legal training that makes you risk averse, and then you see these entrepreneurs who are actually out there taking kind of calculated risks. And I, I would love to start a business someday and, and really take it to a point where you can grow it because I like that process of taking something from a small point and building onto it and building a team and kind of seeing where it can go. Well, I love it, Trevor Schmidt. One thing for sure, if you start your own business, you sure will know how to protect your intellectual property. So that's right. Hopefully I can't miss the blocking and tackling on that one. Trevor Schmidt is an intellectual property expert at Hutchinson Law. He specializes in copyright, patent, and licensing law. Thank you for being on the show. This has been a blast. Doc, I really appreciate it. This has been so much fun. Thank you so much for having me on. That's a wrap. I know, I know that you all are sitting around saying, how can I support Doc G and the Earn and Invest podcast? How can I build this community? How can I make sure that Doc G gets the word out and people listen to this cool show. Well, the best way to do it is tell a friend. Get out there, tell them about the show, tell them about what you like about it. Another way is to subscribe to the show. So if you've been listening but are not catching every episode, go into Apple or wherever you listen to podcasts, subscribe, follow, what have you, and therefore you will be notified when a new episode comes out. Another way is for you to go and leave feedback. I happen to be looking at the feedback on Apple right now, uh, but you can go to Spotify or wherever you listen to this episode Leave us a note and tell us what you think about it. One recent comment we got was from Megan on 615. She wrote, Actionable content. Doc G does such a good job covering a variety of topics. The guests offer valuable insights as well. I would recommend this podcast to anyone looking to be inspired and informed. Thank you, Megan. That is certainly the reason that we put out this podcast. An unknown commenter wrote, authentic interviews with interesting people. Doc G's podcast is authentic, entertaining, and inspiring, and one of my favorite personal finance podcasts because of the fact that it offers so much more than personal finance. Being a consumer of many personal finance blogs, books, and podcasts, I discovered Earn and Invest through some other podcasts and subscribed on the spot because of his interview style and linked to the healthcare field. Being in healthcare myself, I found immediate value and felt I could relate to his perspective on top. I was a doctor, and certainly some of the people listening to this podcast are involved in healthcare, but that doesn't mean that you have to be a healthcare person to love, earn, and invest. Thank you, Megan and Unknown, for leaving your comments on Apple. Check us out at earnandinvest.com. Take a listen, and I hope you enjoy it. Tell a friend. That is how our community will grow. Till next time. Sweet. Sorry. I was, I've, I've, I'm a little off today.
No, yeah, you made it through on a with, battery. I mean, I'm super impressed. With the lights off, and, and I'm actually, I'm, I'm really a doctor by trade and left medicine like a few years ago. I do part-time hospice work now, which is very part-time, but otherwise I spend time doing more of this kind of stuff. And so I still am continuously getting texts and pages. So like I'm sitting there talking to you and I'm getting texts about this patient needs this medicine and this person. Oh, wow. I've, I've gotten mostly used to it, but occasionally like it gets overwhelming and I have like three or four things going on and throw in the fact I also, uh, I own some property. So I have my tenants texting me about <laughs> problems all at the same time. And I'm like, wait, I'm trying to really listen about intellectual property law. Well, this was, I was sitting here talking to you and all of a sudden my phone rings and it's very rare for my phone to ring like at this point in time. So it's just like, oh, wait, nope, I got focus. We're locked in. <laughs> So how, are you doing a lot of podcast interviews? Obviously, it's always different on one side of the mic from the other. Have you been doing a lot of guesting? So this is, I think, my third guest kind of appearance because it's something that our producer kind of encouraged me to kind of get out there and do more of. And it certainly is a different feel to be on the other side, <laughs> other side of the mic. Um, for me personally, I, it's a lot easier just to stay, ask the questions and kind of get other people talking. But it's, it's good to be kind of get the experience from both sides. How long have you been podcasting for? It's been less than a year now. So I think our, our initial <clears throat> launch was in June of 2020. Are you so, once a week or how often do you go? So it's once a month actually once for us. Okay. Yeah. So it's, it's been, it's been pretty spread out and from the podcast side of thing, I'd like to do it a lot more uh, from a kind of, I still have to practice law type of thing. <laughs> you know, once a month tends to work out pretty well. So yeah. Do you, um, do you have to do any of the technical at all yourself or you pretty much show up, do your interview, someone else does everything else? Yeah, fortunately, we've got a great production team that is, is kind of doing the editing, doing the sound quality thing. So I don't have to do it after, you know, preparing the questions and doing the interviews. So that's yeah, great. that's the fun part. <laughs> Make sure you keep it <laughs> yeah. that way. Yeah. The editing, all that kind of other stuff is no fun. Yeah. Know? So that cool. you're doing that on your own? Um, so I have two people who help me, but very, very part time. So. Uh, my son, who's 16 years old, actually edits. Um, and then I have someone who does a little social media stuff for me. But they're, you know, five, 10 hours a week at most total. Um, the rest is me. So I do a lot of the arranging, um, kind of putting it together, putting the music together, figuring out what I want the segments to be, mm -hmm. doing all the scheduling. But that's, I kind of moved my life. So as a physician, I discovered the financial independence movement, realized I had enough money, kind of live the rest of my life and be fine. So this is kind of what I decided I wanted to start filling time up with as I pulled away from medicine, um, kind of what, what my meaning and purpose would be. So, so now are you doing it as like a media company or are you doing financial advising in addition to it? I don't do any financial advising. So for me, it is just as a podcast producer. I, I used to blog too. I, I have trouble doing both at the same time. So I don't blog as much and, and do mostly podcasting now. And I used to write a lot about medicine too. So between those, I, I just like communication, yep. podcasting, writing. I love public speaking. Um, so that kind of thing. So how long have you been doing the podcast then? So we have been going for about two and a half years. Um, my goal was to make it to a million downloads by the end of three years. I think I'm going to miss it by about a month. Oh, wow. So I think I'll make it to a million afterwards. I teamed up with a guy who has a much bigger podcast. Um, so him and I have been working together and he's helped me kind of get the show together too. Uh, but it's still much more, it's, it's definitely more of a passion than a job, right? So I do collect some advertising enough to kind of pay for what I do, et cetera. But it's, it's much more for the passion of doing it than, than any kind of money I'm going to make.
Well, that's great. Well, I, I had a chance to listen to a number of the episodes before we got on and I love what you're doing. So I appreciate you taking the time and having me on. It's, yeah, it's no. And I think this is a great topic. I was really excited to do this topic um, just because it's so different yeah. than anything else I was doing. And and I do, I don't know if I did a great job of getting it out, but I really do think it's important for all of us nowadays yeah. um, because of the social media issue. So again, the segment of my population who's interested in real estate, entrepreneurship, business building are definitely going to be interested. But I think it's really important for the rest of us too, because we're out the, out there creating some kind of content or another, and it can get sticky. So. Well, and, and the fact that everything's available, you know, anybody can take what you've done and it can be gone in yeah. a heartbeat. So, yep, yep. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for the New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off. U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. The corporate world is like the ocean. It's alluring, but it's also full of deadly creatures that can shred you to pieces. It becomes kind of like a Game of Thrones political arena where everyone's trying to murder you to get your job. My family doesn't come from corporate backgrounds, so I didn't have any sort of guidance in that. This is not your typical work podcast. Sometimes you need to be empathetic. And then there are times that you ask for input, but you don't really give a shit. <laughs> Listen to the Ambie Award-nominated podcast, Surfing Corporate. <laughs> Stretch opportunity. What is this, yoga class? Get out of here. <laughs> 